So hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Thank you for Columbia University's The American Assembly and Insight Center um, for sponsoring and promoting this show. And I'm really excited. We have here today Joshua Cazone, who is a, an assistant project scientist at the UCI Department of Earth System Science. And I had initially reached out to him in regards to a paper published in Nature magazine. The uh, rate of mass loss from the Greenland ice sheet will exceed Holocene values this century. And this is a part of a larger initiative with We Be Imagining that we want to invest a lot more time into science communication. And just the pandemic has revealed so many things, but in particular, in particular, how there is a chasm between the people who have the time and the resources to dedicate to really understanding the physical sciences and those who are kind of on the receiving end of their outcome. And um, so we reached out to several people who are doing work that we're particularly fascinated about. And um, Joshua was one of the first people who responded. Our last episode um, that just came out, we'll be having Brianne Barker, who is an immunologist. With that said, um, my name is Khadija again. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the director of We Be Imagining. Um, Josh, I would love if you could say a little bit more about you outside of your academic bio, what pronouns you use, and we can start from there. Yeah, thanks for having me, Khadija. Um, pronouns are he, his. Um, and yeah, just excited to uh, discuss the, the research that uh, me and my team have put out and, and hopefully um, kind of help address uh, some of the questions that folks might have uh, surrounding climate change and in particular, how it's affecting the Arctic and uh, the Greenland ice sheet. Could you, maybe we could start out with one of the things that I was really drawn to, and I was discussing this with Brianne the other day, is that a lot of times when we're when we're thinking about computational modeling um, relative to human decision making, like for example in incarceration or child welfare, mostly we talk about the right to refusal that is often used for like terrible reasons. However, in the physical sciences, there's a lot of like interesting research being done, including kind of in the in the methods and then the GIS modeling that you did in this paper. Um, and particularly, I was interested, I don't know that much about paleogeochemistry, and I had not known that there were previous periods in this in Earth's era that um, were losing this level of um, mass for, for, for Greenland. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that and how you set up the, the modeling. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think um, perhaps one way to think about it is you know, we talk about climate change today as being a consequence of, of human actions, um, you know, our input of uh, use of fossil fuels and input of greenhouse gases. But there's certainly times during the past um, and what we call like our geologic history. So going back over uh, centennial, millennial timescales, um, where there was also natural climate change. And a lot of that has to do um, with how our orbit of the Earth varies around the sun. And when that orbit varies around the sun, uh, the amount of uh, energy from the sun can change through time. And so that can help spur and cause, uh, over these timescales, natural climate changes. And, and so what that allows us to do as, as paleoclimatologists, people who study past climate, and also geologists is see how our earth system responded to those past climate changes. And, you know, we're not necessarily concerned about what might've caused it. We're, we're looking at the response of particular uh, parts of our earth system. In, in our case, the Greenland ice sheet to past climate change. And hopefully uh, the idea there is that it gives us a better understanding of how the, the ice sheet might respond to future climate change, which is 
of course, mainly caused by anthropogenic effects and the effects of humans. No, thank you for that. And for those who are not familiar, could you say a little bit about why you decided to begin at the Holocene era and kind of what was happening at that time? Totally. Um, yeah, so our, our research project focused on uh, this period known as the Holocene, this geologic period we actually find ourselves in now, um, today, and it spans the last 12,000 years. And it's an interesting period because prior to 12,000 years ago, we actually were in what's known as the last glacial maximum. Right? We had big ice sheets over North America. Actually, in fact, a po portion of that ice sheet, the Laurentide ice sheet, extended all the way down to Long Island. So Long Island is kind of the remnants uh, of what, wow. that, what that ice sheet left behind. Yeah. And so we, we went through this period from 20,000 years ago to 12,000 years ago, where we went from a glacial period to kind of a more warm, uh, stable period. And if you look at global climate, the last 12,000 years has been a relatively stable period, uh, both with respect to temperature and with respect to sea level. Of course, our changes today are pretty rapid, but if you go up to the Arctic uh, and around Greenland, temperature was actually slightly warmer than today in some locations. Uh, during this period, we call the, mid, uh, the Holocene Thermal Maximum. It was about 10,000 to 8,000 years ago. And across Greenland, temperature was, was slightly warmer than today or just as warm as today. Um, and that was uh, caused by these orbital variations. So basically, these changes in our orbit that occur over natural periods allowed for solar insulation, so more energy from the sun, to reach the surface of the Earth, particularly during the summer. So that's why back then, during this period, uh, 10 to 8,000 years ago, it was actually you know, just as warm or slightly warmer across Greenland. And that makes it a very good analog for us to study, because if we can better understand how the ice sheet responded to those changes in the past, our, you know, our hope and goal with this work was to put into better context how the ice sheet might respond in the future, and, and really to provide uh, kind of an overview of just how anomalous our changes are today and going forth in the future compared to what happened in the past. Um, kind of our closest geologic history. Well, one of the things that was that that went through my mind while I was reading that is I was thinking about different critiques I've read about um, preservation and this idea that like some people who are progressive in the sense that they support um, you know like nature reserves and national parks and things like that. There's still this idea that nature is static and there's this kind of like pre-existing homeostasis or state that nature should be in, that we should be like continuing to maintain. And I appreciated how it acknowledged how things have changed over time. Um, although the conclusions are, are, are kind of horrifying in the sense of uh, <laughs> so much, so much is melting right now. But yeah, that just stood out to me thinking about how there has always been this dynamic interaction between, you know, the environment and if not always humans, like other species and kind of these other factors that are, that are, uh, in, in conversation, basically. Totally. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the nice things about this work is it was kind of an interdisciplinary project of, you know, when you study climate change, you study it from different backgrounds, different um, fields. And the nice thing about studying the past is, you know, changes in the ice sheet, how the ice sheet changed through time is actually recorded uh, in the uh, in the geology. And so we can go back and reconstruct how the ice sheet changed through time. And it, and it did change in the past um, 
due to different circumstances. Right now, we're concerned about climate change, but of course, climate has always been changing. But what's important when we talk about climate change is what are the causes of that? And of course, today, our causes are much different than what caused uh, natural variations in the past. And can you talk a little bit about kind of the natural variability that you were that the paper is kind of looking at over that twelve thousand year period and how that is distinguished um, between what's between now and kind of the rest of that period? Yeah, I mean, um, we have these geologic records that record kind of the size of the ice sheet through time, and I can get into that in more detail later if you want, but. Um, the ice sheet, sure. yeah, the, the the ice sheet basically, you know, responded to these past climate changes, uh, past warm intervals, past cold intervals. Of course, during past warm intervals, it would retreat, so the ice sheet margin would retreat, and during cold intervals, the ice sheet margin would advance. And there's geologic sequences, whether in sediment cores from lakes or from uh, what we call moraines, which are these features that are left on the landscape. So you can imagine as ice is moving and advancing over the landscape, it's kind of pushing dirt and debris and sediment out in front of it. And it leaves behind these moraines and we can reconstruct where the ice sheet was back through time, its location, and also its timing of when it might've left that particular area. And all of these uh, geologic indicators tell us uh, a little bit something about how the ice sheet responded to past climate change. And in this case, it said the orbital variations in our Earth uh, as it rotates around the sun uh, allowed for more summertime solar insulation, so more energy during the summertime, which caused it to be uh, warm during kind of these intervals during the past. And of course, where it varies today is, you know, it's not orbital variations that are causing our climate change. It's actually uh, greenhouse gases, namely CO2, which is uh, amplifying the greenhouse effect. And that's what's causing our, our warming today and going forth into the future. So different different forcings on how uh, climate changed, comparing it to the past and, and, of course, today and the future. But the responses in terms of how it affects the ice sheet are in many ways uh, similar. And that's what we're looking to study is, is how it responds. And I was wondering if you could clarify, I was trying to understand. So I was looking at this, this modeling section and it was saying the perimeter um, of the area that you were looking at of the Greenland ice sheet was mostly um, kind of the, this like large land-based tract and then including these marine terminating sections, which I'm guessing are like icebergs that are ending into the ocean. Um, and correct me if I'm, if I, if I'm misunderstanding that, um, to include them, like kind of complicated the calculation. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Totally. Um... I guess the overarching conclusion from our work is that going forward in the future, so by the end of the century, mass loss from the Greenland ice sheet will exceed anything that has been experienced at least over the last 12,000 years. But you bring up a great point is, is that when we ran our computer simulations of how the ice sheet responded to climate back through time, we actually only modeled a portion of the Greenland ice sheet. It was this kind of west-southwest portion of the Greenland ice sheet. And our thinking was twofold. One is that if you can kind of model this portion of the ice sheet, and it, if you can model that portion of the ice sheet, if you actually look at records today of how that portion of the ice sheet varies in response to the whole ice sheet, it's pretty linear. So when, one, when that portion of the ice sheet changes, 
it's representative of the whole ice sheet. And so we had an assumption that if we could model this portion well, it was probably reflecting what the whole ice sheet was doing. The other reason why we you know, decided to model that portion of the ice sheet is that it's mostly what we call land-based. So a lot of the ice during the last 12,000 years was sitting on land. Now, across other portions of Greenland, uh, ice can actually flow into the water. We call that marine terminating glaciers. And that complicates things because not only do you have the surface forcing, so basically the atmosphere influencing the ice, you also have the marine environment, the ocean, the ocean temperature, the ocean salinity that can influence the ice, its melt and its retreat. And so by modeling this southwest uh, portion of the ice sheet, it's mainly land-based and it's a little bit uh, more simple to, to model that with a, a computer uh, uh, simulation um, because the ice sheet is mainly responding to what we call the surface mass balance. So that's how much it's either gaining in mass through accumulation, so snowfall, or how much it's losing in mass through processes of, of, of melt. And so that kind of hopefully uh, clarifies, I think, why we focused on this section. But I think one of the bigger things is that you know, ice sheet modeling as a field is kind of varied. You know, when you go back and you model these systems over thousands and thousands of years, you have to kind of unfortunately simplify things. And to be quite honest, uh, ice sheet modeling today in its current context, we're still trying to figure out how best to model these ice-ocean interactions. And, and we're making great progress, but applying that to kind of the uh, studying the past millennia, it not only adds computational expense, we kind of call it computational expense, but that just means it makes it the computer simulation very uh, hard to run. It takes a lot of time. Um, but we also aren't really sure how to put those physics into the ice sheet model currently right now. And so there's a lot of work that's going on. To- yeah, that's that, that's the impression that I... Sorry to cut you off and went out for a second. No, I was just saying I really appreciated that part about the level of uncertainty that's within this. Like even the way that you tried to account, well, you, the, the whole team of people tried to account for precipitation and changes in like weather over time and um, building this was the IS, ISSM simulations um, for varying temperature. But maybe if you could just say a little more about kind of the degree of uncertainty within within the model and kind of what do you what are the implications of that? Totally. And so, um, you know, our our, mod, our our whole framework was to basically bring together these different fields. And so we have the glacial geologists and they pretty much provided us these great snapshots of how the ice sheet changed through time uh, based upon the geologic record. <clears throat> then we had uh, myself and other team members who focused on using computer simulations to model how the ice sheet changed through time. And you can imagine when you're modeling how the ice sheet changes through time, you need to know something about climate. And, and that's a big conundrum. That's probably one of the biggest uncertainties is what was the climate doing for the last 12,000 years? And it, it actually turns out that uh, we can go to the ice sheet and drill into the ice and take these long ice core records. And if you ever looked at a picture or if folks Google a picture of what an ice core, uh, kind of a thin slice of the ice core looks like, it actually has a bunch of air bubbles in it. And those air bubbles are ancient atmosphere. And so by going up to the ice sheet, drilling into the ice sheet and extracting these ancient air bubbles, we can actually reconstruct not only what the ancient atmosphere was, but also what temperature was. And then also these ice cores look like tree rings. 
there's different layers and you can backtrack how much accumulation there might have been in the past. The third component to this work beyond the geology, the ice sheet modeling, was reconstructing the past climate history. And uh, our other team members use these ice core data, which reconstruct past precipitation accumulation at discrete points along within the ice sheet. And they use data assimilation techniques, basically means they're able to take these ice core records and combine that with climate model data to basically expand across the whole ice sheet these reconstructions of past climate. And the, you know, these reconstructions really represent the state-of-the-art climate reconstruction for the last 12,000 years. They're, of course, not perfect, and they're only going to improve with time. Um, but we use these as, as inputs into our ice sheet model um, to be able to simulate how the uh, ice sheet changed during the past. And one of the nice things is that we have different climate reconstructions. We actually had nine different climate reconstructions. So we were able to run nine different ice sheet simulations. And some of our simulations agree really well with the geologic record, and some of our simulations agree less well with the geologic record. But that allowed us to gain confidence that our ice model results were doing a good job in uh, capturing the changes that uh, were recorded in the geologic record, and therefore gave us trust that we can compare it to our current changes in the ice sheet and uh, use future simulations to look at how the uh, to compare against the future as well. And I'm just wondering, how did you guys as a team navigate the interdisciplinarity of this work? Because part of the thing is interdisciplinary work is hard. Um, you know, there's like language barriers, there's like different like conceptual frameworks that maybe have overlap, but, you know, don't always translate the same. And so kind of what did, what did that look like for you guys? And um, I'm also curious on one level, you know, we talk a lot about race on the show. And, uh, I was like, there's very, there's very few black people that I saw, like that were a part of these teams, but on the, on the flip side, I was thinking who else is like looking at like ice margin history. And I was thinking about how many indigenous people are kind of located in these Northern regions that are being impacted, um, by something like the, the, not just climate change in general, but this, this rapidly melting, uh, sheet of ice from Greenland. Um, and I was just wondering as part of the interdisciplinary work, do you guys look at like indigenous knowledge production and kind of some of the work that those, those people are doing? Yeah. Amazing question. And, and so I guess the, I'll, I'll, I'll try and address it as best as I can. Like the first part, I, I totally agree. Interdisciplinary worker is, is incredibly difficult. I think, and this isn't, I'm not trying to generalize, but I think for younger faculty or younger scientists, People who are early career, such as myself, I think it's uh, maybe we're a little bit more used to it because it was kind of asked of us during our graduate studies that you had to be more interdisciplinary. But certainly, you know, scientists and faculty traditionally have been kind of put into their their certain fields and that that's what they work on. So getting us to talk to each other and to, you know, have uh, actual gains in our collective knowledge has been quite difficult. But uh, I think that's the great part about this project. It was a five-year project. And we really, through that process, learned to, to kind of talk to each other, learn to uh, communicate better. And, and now we have a great framework. So hopefully our teamwork can kind of continue on from there. And just kind of from a personal standpoint, you know, this isn't 
super interdisciplinary, but in terms of climate science, I, I ended up going to school in my undergrad and master's for atmospheric science and meteorology, but my PhD was actually in glacial geology. So I, I, I took a 360 and actually spent my PhD in a laboratory uh, doing column chemistry on kind of these uh, rock samples to reconstruct past ice sheet history. And then now in my life right now, I'm doing ice sheet modeling. So I kind of went on this sinuous path where I think for myself, I'm not, I don't necessarily feel like an expert in anything, but I, I feel like I at least can communicate across boundaries. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that that skill set uh, helped to serve us in being able to communicate more effectively. The uh, second question is a really important question. And it's something that I think the scientific community is uh, hopefully waking up to. Certainly, diversity in STEM and geologic sciences is is not uh, where it needs to be, and in many cases is is to be honest non-existent, um, particularly in kind of these cryospheric sciences. That that's something that I hope we can uh, do a better job. I'm an affiliate at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. There's there's definitely a big pull to involve more minority represented institutions, particularly here in Los Angeles, the Cal State system, but also working with uh, historically black universities and colleges. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping that kind of the powers that be really, really take aim that this is something that's critical, that, that we do need to expand uh, opportunities, particularly to students that are interested in science that come from backgrounds that are underrepresented and may not have the opportunities to to, to take part in these, the, these endeavors and definitely want to learn more from you guys. Cause I know that's what you, you talk about this stuff a lot. Um, and yeah, and the, sorry, the last one, <laughs> uh, indigenous communities of course are affected greatly, particularly in the Arctic um, by climate change, whether it's just traditional practices or, or hunting, the Arctic isn't just confined to the green and ice sheet. There's also uh, the tundra and sea ice, which is changing. And a lot of our work, actually, some of our collaborators were at Columbia University, and uh, there was a big push in this project to kind of increase synergies with the the Greenlandic community, the the native folks up there, and and that's something that's still, I think, uh, in its infancy. But hopefully, future projects will begin to kind of bring them to the table to to really include them. Um, and I I don't I don't think, you know, they need to learn more about climate change. I think us as scientists actually need to perhaps learn more from them. I would love to really take part in more endeavors that allowed for me to learn more about their culture, their traditions, and how they are uh, viewing climate change in, in their region. Yeah, no, I think, and sorry, I tend to like rapid fire. Part of it is <laughs> I'm just like kind of thinking out loud with you, but I do throw a lot of questions at people. I mean, on the question of like indigenous knowledge production, and I, I don't know that much about the um, indigenous population on, in, in Greenland, but it reminded me of um, also another piece in, in nature of these, um, it was discussing these oral histories with shepherds in Chernobyl. And basically, like through these oral histories, they were able to see that these farmers and these shepherds had um, an experience about the rate of recovery of the like wildlife and of the plant life in Chernobyl that didn't correspond to like the official former record on what was happening. And through those oral histories, they were able to basically like get funding to circle back and kind of reassess the situation and find that the like the facts actually more corresponded with the testimonies and like the firsthand experiences of the people who lived there. And I'm just like, 
just thinking through yeah. this because I can see that you know your dissertation was on interdisciplinary approach towards understanding the late Pleistocene. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that um, ice sheet. And so I'm just thinking through that interdisciplinary work. You know, like how can we bring in these other forms of of knowledge production? Yeah, totally. And it. It's, oh, that wasn't really a question. Though. No, <laughs> I'm, just, I, I, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. But I, I, I totally agree. Like it's, uh, you can't help but notice that just there's been decades and decades of research in these areas where native populations live, and and very, very, very little has been done to kind of um, increase synergies and and really, I think, as scientists, to learn from these folks because they have so much knowledge. <laughs> that I hopefully uh, they're willing to share, but it just can't be a take, you know, we, we just can't go there as scientists and, and just continue to uh, kind of take without becoming part of, uh, of that broader community, I think. Um, yeah. Well, it's also interesting that it's like field dependent. So we just had an episode on agroecology and there's actually a lot of work in agroecology about knowledge co-production and it's like particularly my background I'm from Ethiopia. And so there's like a lot of work around that. But maybe what you could speak to is a little bit like what supports, because I think, you know, look, I saw a shutdown STEM and it's nice that people, you know, a lot of institutions are putting out statements about their commitment right. to diversity. But, you know, I think like when you're saying early career scientists, I think part of it is that there has been structural support to facilitate that kind of interdisciplinary work. And so maybe you could share some insight into what supported the interdisciplinary work, even of this like five-year research project into Greenland, like what, what allowed that to happen? What kind of, you know, how did everybody learn about kind of each other's language and, and to get the work done? On a personal note, I've just always been drawn to the interconnectedness. The climate system is, of course, there's, there's, you know, multifaceted. I think that's what's drawn me to kind of uh, delve into these different fields related to climate science. But during my PhD dissertation, I think, you know, I was given all the support in the world, uh, was able to kind of make these changes, you know, tackle these different questions in, in these different fields. But I think inherently by nature, climate science is, is an interdisciplinary field. And it's just be kind of uh, we're kind of turning a page where folks are kind of coming out with maybe backgrounds that are closer to mine that are more interdisciplinary, not necessarily just focused on on one particular area or research field. And so I think that's uh, that's certainly maybe something that's becoming more fostered in in, in students who are seeking degrees in climate science. Um, and then certainly these big projects, these big collaborative efforts are becoming more and more common. And I think from a funding source, Point of view are, are something that you know National Science Foundation or other organizations are are really looking to foster that interdisciplinary work because that's that's really how you're able to tackle these these big broad questions is working together with folks that are experts in these particular fields that really relate to the work that individuals are doing. I don't know if that necessarily addresses your question, but. No, I mean, it's a societal question. So I often, you know, want people to solve like all structural inequity. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think that we're all kind of thinking about it. But the other thing that stuck out to me, you know, I just one of the reasons that I was really interested in science communication is that on one hand, you have the right, which is kind of just denying that climate change is happening at all. It's like a myth. But also on the left, like I think that even people who politically like would endorse that there's climate change, there's not so much of um, there's a lot of like 
similarly, like in genetics, like people just like throw out there that there's epigenetic changes all the time. Like people don't necessarily understand in depth. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of take us into the weeds a little bit to talk about, um, you know, what, what does it mean when it says the largest pre-industrial rates of mass loss up to 6,000 billion tons, I don't know, 6,000 billion, um, occurred in the early Holocene and it's like similar to now. Um, how do we kind of contextualize that to, to understand that we should be concerned? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. One way to put it, we're kind of looking at rates of change that we haven't seen in the geologic record. I think that's the first thing. And that's happening within a human lifetime, which is rather incredible because in geologic history, things tend to happen a little bit slower. There there are certainly abrupt changes um, in the geologic record, but things happen slower than typically on a human timescale. And, and just to put that into a broader context, so I discussed and, and you stated that, you know, during this period, 10 to 8,000 years ago, we actually had elevated warmth in Greenland and the mass loss in Greenland during that time is similar-ish to what we're experiencing today. But what happened during the, from 8,000 years ago to kind of the pre-industrial 1850 is that the, the ice sheet actually was stable and it might've grown a little bit and gained mass. And the last 4,000 years, it certainly gained mass. And what we're going to be doing this century to put this into perspective is we're within one century, the mass gains that we experienced over the Greenland ice sheet uh, in the last 4,000 years is likely to be reversed within one century. So hopefully that puts into scale the pace of the change that is happening to the Greenland ice sheet and what's expected for the future. This certainly is unprecedented. You know, we always talk about 2100 in climate science, year, year 2100, but you can extrapolate this out to the future. We're committed to change in the Arctic. Despite, you know, changes that we make, we can reduce the effect or we can modulate the amplitude of the change in the Arctic, but we're still committed to uh, change that is uh, unprecedented when you look at the geologic record. Um, and what has been the reaction um, to your paper, particularly in that it does project until the year 2100? And so it's, it's already horrifying to be alive right now in 2020. And so thinking about the impact 80 years from now, because um, you seem generally optimistic. I, I, I don't know, I, though. It's, it's <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is, uh, to be honest. I, I mean, it's still an early career scientist, but, you know, Climate science has been something that I've wanted to pursue since I was a young kid. And I don't know if it's just um, you become maybe numb to the, the reality of it. But over time, particularly with just, the, just how uh, negative folks are when it comes to doing something about climate change or even acknowledging that, that it is an issue. But I, I think when we look towards the future, yeah, it's interesting because there's still a lot of uncertainty um, about uh, how much the ice sheet will change. That's still active research, the rates of how the ice sheet will change. And of course, you know, we have the Greenland ice sheet. We also have the Antarctic ice sheet in the Southern Hemisphere. There's a lot of uncertainty about what Antarctica, the Antarctic ice sheet is going to do as well. But at least the science uh, is able to put into context that we are expecting changes. We're expecting unprecedented changes in the next century. And these changes, you know, we have some sort of window of how much the ice sheet will change. And that's going to affect global populations. And, and of course, it's probably going to hurt folks that are poorest disproportionately more. Yeah, I, I, I think 
one outcome of our research is that when we is that our ice sheet model and our framework looked at the past 12,000 years up to today, but we also went forward into the future. And the nice thing about that is we used a consistent framework and we used the same ice sheet model. A lot of times, you know, research will kind of put together results from different models. So like the past, the present, and then the future, we've used one continuous model, um, the same exact model. And so our our kind of results are consistent in that manner. And, and so that's a nice take home from our work. What we also did when we looked at the future was we looked at different scenarios. And those scenarios uh, are, are different climate scenarios on how much carbon we emit in the future. But we have a high emission scenario, which we call the RCP, the relative concentration pathway 8.5. And that's kind of where we emit a lot of carbon. We typically call it the business as usual. So it's kind of similar to what our global population is doing today in terms of carbon emissions. And when you look at how much mass loss the Greenland ice sheet might get from that, it's well outside the range of what we experienced the last 12,000 years. However, something that maybe leads to a little bit of optimism in me is that when you run the ice sheet model with uh, scenarios, it's called RCP 2.6, where you make uh, large cutbacks to emissions mid-century, what ends up happening is that actually the mass loss from the Greenland ice sheet at the end of the century is, is you know, not much higher than what we're experiencing today. So we're still going to be losing a lot of mass, but it doesn't go well outside what we've experienced the last 12,000 years of present. Um, and, and so I think that just goes to show that we can make a positive uh, impact. We can make a positive change um, if we kind of commit towards working uh, towards that solution to, to mitigate our carbon emissions. Now, doesn't mean that the results are exactly correct, but at least we've given ourselves this uh, window of view to see that that changes can make an impact. And could you spell out, I mean, I think that people generally think, okay, climate change, Greenland ice sheet melting, sea levels are rising, you know, uh, the temperature of the seas is, is getting warmer. But could you kind of spell out in a little more detail, like what is kind of the impact that we're seeing of this now or in, you know, 2100 using the business as usual model. Yeah. Particularly for the Arctic, would you say? Yeah. We could, yeah for the Arctic. Sorry. Yeah. More specific. It's hard to, to put into, uh, I think, raw numbers. We do have kind of a range of, of, uh, of numbers uh, in terms of what the ice sheet will contribute to sea level rise. You're looking at somewhere between, you know, eight to 15 centimeters possible sea level rise by the end of the century. And that might not seem like a lot to people, but when you factor in that uh, a large portion of people live within, you know, a few feet of sea level, that has a big impact. Sea level will rise in the future as these ice sheets continue to melt. You know, that's a big deal. And we can, we can, uh, of course, uh, experience a lot more sea level rise, potentially uh, some of the it just is, it, there's a lot of model dependency. And so we're not exactly sure on, you know, one exact number. We have a range of estimate. But also, you know, when we talk about the changing Arctic, it's not just sea level rise. So folks that might live in the interior of countries that kind of are thinking about this is like, well, why should I care? When the Arctic changes, our global climate changes, right? The Arctic uh, is, right, we have sea ice. We also have these big ice sheets like the Greenland ice sheet. And these are highly reflective surfaces. They reflect a lot of energy back to, to space. They kind of, in essence, are our planet's air conditioning. 
And so when that changes and we warm the Arctic, we also experience global climate change. Our atmospheric circulation patterns can shift. And that, that has a downstream effect, you know, not just on places close to sea level, but uh, everywhere. And so really it's a, it's a, it's a issue that when the, when, the, when the polar regions change, it affects us all um, from multi-factors. Uh, um, and then my other question was just when you were verifying, sorry, when you were verifying the model against independent ice margin, um, history, like who, who, which field is it that is doing this independent ice margin history? Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a field of glacial geology and, uh, the glacial geologists are the ones that kind of go to the field and, and collect these samples, bring them back to the lab and, uh, they reconstruct the retreat history of the ice sheet during the past. Um, and then the comparison against the model is something that is actually pretty new. Um, it's typically been that glacial geologists you know, publish their results, ice sheet modelers publish their results, and then they kind of read each other's papers and maybe do some sort of comparison. But it's starting to become more common now that the two fields ice sheet modelers are working with these glacial geologists to compare the model versus the data. And was there anything else that during the course of this five years that surprised you that was kind of an unanticipated um, either result or just kind of within the process that um, you hadn't expected? Yeah, it's a good question. I think certainly the result, um, I think in the back of our head, we, we had the idea that this was likely the result, but didn't expect that the kind of magnitude of the result, that how unprecedented uh, the changes will be across Greenland going forth in the next century compared to the geologic record. That was definitely a surprise to me, um, just the, the magnitude of the, the, that scale. And I think as a early career uh, research scientist, I, it just was really nice to have you know, late career uh, folks people who are established in their field, just be really supportive of this interdisciplinary work and, and to help kind of foster. And yeah, I think just the success of our project really speaks to being able to effectively communicate across these disciplines that don't normally communicate. And I think going forward, we're really in a good position to continue this collaborative work. That's something that I definitely uh, has been a, a great take home for me and a little surprising that it worked out so well. And so what's next? I mean, in terms of like future ice simulations, but also now that this five-year period is up, I mean, do you, is there a team that's still continuing to work on this or like what happens now? Yeah. So we're, we're hoping to kind of extend this work, continue to work as a team on this project, still focusing on Greenland. And one of the kind of more outstanding questions that exists in the kind of the field in terms of studying ice sheets is there's a, there's a question of how important is the what we call the surface forcing so how much melt occurs across the ice sheet how 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 important is that melt relative to how important is the ice ocean interaction so how the ocean influences the ice sheet and causes it to uh, lose mass and that's an active area of research today kind of looking at just processes at the contemporary ice sheet. But that question is really something that we can tackle by, again, looking at the geologic record and running simulations for all of Greenland. And so our plan hopefully is to run these paleoclimate simulations over the last 12,000 years across all of Greenland and include 
the influence of the ocean. And that hopefully will, by doing so and comparing to the geologic record, which kind of constrains how well our model is doing, um, hopefully we'll be able to answer or, or provide more information as to what is the relative importance of the ice-ocean interaction and then the atmosphere-ice interaction, which currently we're not necessarily sure. If you look at what's controlling mass loss rate across the ice sheet in the most recent decades, it's certainly melt driven by the atmospheric warming. But there's been times in the past where the ocean has really influenced the ice sheet and controlled its mass loss. And so I think by studying the uh, geologic history, we can provide a much longer term context on those kind of factors that influence the ice sheet. And hopefully uh, that'll lead to better science and better predictions of how the ice sheet might change in the future. As far as like the ocean's influence, is, are we still looking at the same thing in terms of like the CO2 into the atmosphere, creating this like larger environmental warming that's then warming the ocean? Or is there another factor that's that's influencing kind of the ocean onto the ice? Yeah, so you do get warming, but from just global warming, you do warm the, the surf, sea surface temperature. But actually for ice sheets, um, that's not necessarily what matters the most. So it's not necessarily the, the sea surface temperatures, the high sea surface temperatures, which in, influence the ice. It's actually subsurface temperature. So temperature at depth, we're talking 200 meters or, or so. And that's controlled in large part to, to changes in oceanic circulation, um, which can be controlled by climate change. And so climate change also influences not only atmospheric circulation, but oceanic circulation and allows for changes in kind of these water, we call them water masses, which might be warmer or colder at depth to basically um, migrate towards the ice margin in these areas where the ice flows into the ocean. And that actually causes warming. So if you can get this warm water at depth to rise up under these uh, glaciers that are terminating into the ocean, you can cause uh, basal melting of that ice. So you cause the ice to melt due to the ocean. And then that'll uh, potentially lead to weakening of the ice and you can get calving. So these big chunks of ice that you, that you can see falling off, calving off. There's a component of climate change that influences how, these, how ocean circulation changes and how that might affect uh, the ice sheet through this kind of warming of subsurface ocean temperatures. And just listening to you speak, I'm wondering, you know, I would imagine all of these things have kind of a, a, a biodiversity impact. And so I'm thinking about the uncertainty of modeling the, the rate of ice sheet loss. I'm just wondering how much does, how much, how much is like the, I don't even know the idea of living on Greenland sounds so cold. So I don't know how, I don't know how many different species are there already. Um, but like the, the impact of kind of the rising sea waters or the increase in temperature and this like 200 meters below the ocean surface, um, is that changing kind of the animals, the marine life there? And does that have an impact on kind of what's happening as far as like the ice that's on land? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And for, unfortunately, I don't know too much about that, but I, what I can say is there are uh, species that do rely on kind of certain temperature bounds, right, um, that are certainly going to terrestrial animals, so maybe fish populations in lakes or land animals that, that are certainly going to be affected by uh, the change in, in temperature and also precipitation, things like that as the ice sheet uh, changes. And then you know, when the ice sheet melts, it, it actually drops a lot of fresh water into the ocean. And that fresh water can disrupt oceanic circulation, but it also can affect um, kind of the salinity of the ocean. 
um, salinity of the ocean could influence organisms and biologic systems as well. And so, yeah, it, it definitely, that question is great because it, and it's something that I don't know much about, but it really points to this bigger factor that, you know, climate change isn't just about warming or losing ice, but it, it has in, in affecting humans, but it really has these downstream effects on the biodiversity, the local biodiversity, and also regional biodiversity as well. No, thank you. We have kind of a, a ritual where we ask each of our guests to recommend something that they're reading, listening, watching to share with our listeners. It could be on topic or, or off. Um, although I think people would definitely also appreciate something that's kind of within your wheelhouse as well. I would honestly, if folks want to learn about uh, climate science and paleoclimatology in a really, if they want to read something that's uh, I think really informative, but also entertaining. There's a great book. It's by a scientist, a, a, a very well-known climate scientist, Richard Alley, and it's called The Two-Mile Time Machine. And it takes you through this journey of how you can reconstruct climate um, from these ice cores, but also takes you through uh, just how natural climate change occurs and how kind of this anthropogenic uh, human caused climate change uh, occurs and it's a it's a really good overview of things if folks want to learn more about that. Um, so I'd, I'd certainly recommend that book. Um, it's a two mile time machine by Richard Alley. Dope, definitely put it in the show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like to suggest? It could also be totally random and about something else. We've even had somebody recommend, although I was mad because I <laughs> live in uh, New York City, but they recommend just go to the your closest body of water, um, or it could be Netflix, something that you're binging, just anything of interest to you. Man, well, so I'm from the I'm from Connecticut, and so one thing that I'm missing right now living in California is the fall color. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully people are taking advantage of going out and seeing that because that's something I can't see right now. So hopefully they can do that for me. <laughs> Go outside and hopefully there's some nice fall colors. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any? Well, one is that our, you know we have a lot of like tech privacy people who never share their social media. But do you have social media or a site that you want to share with people, or any last words, kind of on the on the paper or your research that you would like people to check out? Yeah. So, unfortunately, I don't have any social media right now. But yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, especially to you for for you know for, uh, taking interest in in the work that we're doing and kind of bringing attention to just broader climate science questions and research. So I certainly appreciate that. And, and, and hopefully some of the stuff I've talked about uh, kind of helps uh, folks better understand climate change, particularly in the Arctic. And uh, certainly I can share my contact information with you. If folks ever have questions, they're more than, more than happy to answer uh, or discuss with them further. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. Um, and check out the work uh, in part by Joshua Cuzon, including the article that'll be linked in the show notes. Rate of mass loss from the Greenland ice sheet will exceed Holocene values this century. And thank you. That's it. Oh, and you can also write in questions to us and to Josh at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. Thanks.